runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 127 with guest Dana Epp, recorded Friday, September 18th, 2009. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Run As Radio. I'm your host, Richard Campbell. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, everybody. What's up, Richard? Not too much, man. It's uh, the middle of conference season in the fall, so uh, thank goodness for pre-recording, because I'm definitely not here. <laughs> I don't know where I am. I'm, I'm, I think I'm right in the middle of life change, yeah, is where, where I am. where you are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're probably off on a honeymoon or something nice like that. Yeah, it depends on what today's date yeah, is. And it's... It's in our in our time shifting uh, world of recording. It doesn't here. mean much, does it? Really? Yeah. Well, it's good. Good. To, good to hear from yeah, you. Again. Always good. And hey, I've got a, a a favorite guest of ours. Dana Epp is back from Scorpion Software. Uh, Excellent. The security nut. Is we've read his bio a bunch of times, and of course, uh, he's uh, he and I were speaking together at a show in Vancouver called Tech Days. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, and how about yourself? Oh, you know, no rest for the wicked. But uh, yeah, that's for sure. We had a, we had a good time at Tech Days. It was a great show. We did. It was excellent. Lots of great people coming out. It was excellent. Yeah, the house was full. It's nice to see uh, technology thriving in in the downturn times in Vancouver. Yeah, for sure. What did you guys talk about at Tech Days? Oh, I had a bunch of sessions. I did a one session on direct access and having the ability to provide the always-on experience for users, no matter if they're inside the network or not. And uh-huh. did a session on developers' app compatibility uh, so people could learn how to get those legacy applications actually running in a Windows 7 or Vista environment. And then uh, we had a – they renamed it. It was originally supposed to be how to take advantage of free tools, but they renamed the session to Dana's Playtime. And basically <laughs> spent an hour and a half uh, showing how to uh, use a lot of tools from sysinternals. And I was showing how to use Nmap and Netmon and uh, do network diagnostics and scan and fingerprint operating systems. And, and literally, you know, get all the extra benefits. So you show PowerShell and how to cool. extract uh, data from uh, you know, event logs for looking for security events and running the baseline security analyzer to look for uh, vulnerable systems that might not be under control of WSIS and stuff like that. So, Well, that's pretty cool. That that could be a show in and of itself, you know, I'd, especially, you know, you talk about fingerprinting operating systems. That's something I've looked into. That that sounds like a fun topic to talk about sometime. Well, it is. And, you know, a lot of times you got to put under control, you know, WSS and, and tools like that are really good for getting patches in place. But how do you actually know if they've been properly deployed? Or more importantly... Sure. If other patches go into place or you're impl- applying service packs and things go out of control, the nice thing about fingerprinting OSs and checking, you can actually check to see if certain patches are in place just by, in many cases, if, if they're network-centric or it could be attacked network-centrally by using some of these tools. And so what ends up happening is is you get that extra verification that um, the systems are properly, uh, not only patched, but they're up-to-date with all the other components. And you can understand the attack surface externally. When you scan those systems, you'll understand what's leaking on the net so you know what's exposed and how it works. Yeah, cool. I'm sorry, this is too cool a topic. We're not getting off it. <laughs> Dana, wasn't, isn't this what NAP was all about? Wasn't NAP supposed to do this for us? 
Well, that gives you the ability to quarantine and control in a health check center um, as they're connecting up. And it, it is very powerful because it gives you the ability to isolate the machines that are not going to meet a health check requirement. Right. But health right. check requirement requires you to, in advance, have an understanding of what the baseline is supposed to be for what you're going to authorize coming in. So if you've got some sort of workstation that, uh, let's say you've got your favorite AV company and you want to make sure that the firewalls are properly deployed and that uh, the patch levels are all in place, you can quarantine them with NAP. Allow them to be, be uh, remediated to, to some baseline that you accept and allow this to go through. But what do you do when the machines are already on the net, they're already communicating the way NAP is, or let's go the other way and say the machines aren't on the net right. and they can't come under a NAP quarantine? How do you manage those machines? Um, what do you do when machines are coming into the net and aren't in a scope that's there? Let's use, for example, an OS X or a Linux or some other yeah. operating system where, hey, you can, they're on the network and you have the ability to scan and see their profiles, but you don't have an ability to get them to do a health check. Uh, okay. Well, that's where, you know, you can take advantage of some of these other tools that can provide that type of methodology for you. So, really, we're talking about tools that go across operating systems, but it's re about analyzing machines in your network to find out who they are, what their status are, all that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and you know, some, sometimes it's actually just good because... Um, a NAP quarantine, as an example, and allowing for enforcement, is not going to actually do anything to ensure that certain ports aren't leaking out. Let's, let's say you have a de you have one of your, your machines, Richard, and you, you bring it into the net, and you've installed Visual Studio on there, and you've decided that you're doing some um, ASP.NET dev on there, and you've installed IIS, and now all of a sudden there's this web server that's on this machine that probably isn't under the same... Uh, level of security that you might have CorpNet on, right. but this machine's now you know leaking IIS, and so now all of a sudden you have, I don't know, you're testing out some new um, API from Microsoft, and you're not quite sure exactly how it all works together, and you've exposed some really poorly written um, test code um, that could literally cause failure on your system. Well, now you've got this machine that's not under a normal protection scope. You probably haven't run the host firewall to restrict that because it's a dev machine that you need to be able to do work on. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you have no idea. However, if you have something like an Nmap scan, you have a PowerShell script that would go through and scan every host on the network on a periodic basis, just you know, doing a point-in-time check, as you can. And all of a sudden, uh -huh. um, a report comes up and says, hey, port uh, 80 is open on Richard's laptop. Why, why is that? Well, now they can use human heuristics to make a decision if that is a good idea or not. And, you know, in some cases that might be fine. In other cases it may not be. But, you know, that's going to come down to the corporate security policy of the organization. But in many cases they won't know about it. And NAP's not going to tell you that unless you explicitly say, I need the firewall to be on and following these policies. And that's not always going to happen in a lot of these machines. Now, this tool is called NMAP? NMAP, yeah. Okay, and like NMAP.org? Yeah, and well, or insecure.org. It's you know, it's really funny. It's a it's an open source tool. It's been out forever, and and my involvement is in the old days when I did a lot of grassroots uh, Linux and Unix uh, administration and security. I used to use it all the time. And actually, back in XP SP2, I had a very interesting little role in that. When raw sockets were removed from um, the Windows stack, right. it became uh, that NMAP can no longer could function. It just simply wouldn't work anymore on on a Windows platform. So right. I was really got to be angry. Honest with you, I was angry with Microsoft because I really didn't agree with their position on pulling raw sockets out. Um, so I looked at the guys over at NMAP and I said, you know what? And I know Fjord over there, and, and I wanted to make sure we could have this tool running because it's a great tool. So I actually wrote a patch that would make NMAP work on Windows again. 
uh, call, actually, I wrote two different patches that would allow it to work uh, without raw sockets. And that's, it's actually, I mean, even think to today it's still in there and allows it to work from XPSP2 and above. And that's, well, that's, a, that's the good thing about open source is that if something's not working and you have some experience and know how to make it work, you can go do that so you can get the tool working. And, and that was, that's, you know, some of my uh, contributions to the open source world, just, and no one really knows because yeah, it's just NMAP for Windows, right? So, right. But it, but it's nice because I got my tool, you know, and that's important to yeah. me. So, all right. I mean, that's a great tool, and the main thing here is that I, from one machine, I can go off and basically check all the other machines, see what other ports are open on them, and and do some interrogation. Apparently, they, you'll actually yeah, tell yeah. me. What's well, on if you look, there's a huge amount of man pages and online documentation, on, and I really suggest people read it because there's so much more it can do. Not only can it check for ports, but it can actually tell you what services are running on those ports. You can fingerprint right. the OS, and there's a lot to it. Now, I will put a word of caution or a caveat on using a tool like this. You must have written permission from the people right. uh, up above because you are interrogating networks and systems, and doing so, you need to have authorization to do that. In other words, it doesn't give you the right to use this tool to be scanning other people's networks. Um, exactly. People do it, and, but it's wrong. There, there's, you, know, you, there's a re, you can use this as a black hat, and you can use this as a white hat. You know, right. That's just, reality Just like all. any security tool, right? Yeah, exactly. like any security tool. And, and at the end of the day, you're ultimately responsible for what's going on there. And I have heard of people that have gotten in trouble because, you know, you know, ISPs don't really like, uh, they frown upon the fact of you scanning their core systems, as an example. People do it all the time. So just make sure you own the systems, that you're responsible for the systems, and you have permission to do so before you use it. Yeah, I think and that's, that's a good, I'm glad you made that point because that's a very important one to make. Yeah, these are just tools. You can use them for good or for evil. That's right. All right. Next up, what's your next favorite uh, free tool? Well, I'm a big fan of the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer. Ah. It's, it's an old tool, but it is a tool, nonetheless, that works really, really well. Now, what I like about it is it gives you the ability to uh, scan across your entire network and look against different types of application sets uh, and operating systems in the Windows world that uh, you can fingerprint to find out that um, how, how weak are the administrator passwords, how weak are the other sets of passwords, how, what is the surface of the system, and more importantly, across everything else are, are the proper security patches been applied to the system. So when we were doing tech days, I purposely brought up a VM that I had uh, not run for like over a year. And uh, I had it in an isolated loop back so it wouldn't cause any um, issues. But we brought it up and, you know, it was, just, it was a Windows Server 2003 box that wasn't running for a year. When we brought it up and did the um, Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer against it, we'd come up with 43 security patches that weren't applied. Wow. And, you know, that would be, and, and this happens a lot. How many times do we have virtual machines that we spin up that might be idle? And maybe it's not a year, maybe it's just a month, but there might be two, three security patches that are not applied there, making that system vulnerable. Well, with MBSA, you have the ability to scan and look for those type of conditions and reinforce making sure that WSUS, if it's in a WSUS scope, is, is actually doing its job, and more importantly, when it's not, it gives you this report to allow you to do that. And then what's really nice is the whole point of the you know, baseline security analyzer is you've got a baseline. You know where you are since last scan. So you can then take a look at the reporting to make a determination of what's changed from an attack surface point of view, what applications or, in this case, security patches haven't been applied. Or interestingly enough, I've actually seen times where uh, security patches have been uh, removed, and that's because someone's done a rollback or something went wrong, and we right. need to make a determination of what happened there. 
service pack changes or what have you. Sure. I know. I remember they updated, I think, is it 2.1, I think, of that tool. They updated yeah. it so that it does Vista in 2008 because there was a bit of a gap there, as I recall. What about Windows 7? Is there uh, in 2008 R2? I haven't actually checked recently, but uh, is there compatibility there? Do you know, or do we need to wait for something? Well, interestingly more? enough, I've, I, I don't know. On Windows, I've run it on Windows 7. Actually, my demos, I do it all on Windows 7, but I haven't actually um, scanned a Windows 7 machine uh, to yeah. do a verification on there. You're right. You need to have 2.1 for 2008 and uh, Vista, and I'm going to say, and this is an uninformed op- opinion, but I'm going to believe that if it's working against Vista, which it is on 2.1, I'm going to guess it's going to work on Win 7 the same way. But I don't yeah, know that, that for sure. That would be my guess, too, but uh, yeah, yeah. I would also have to try it to find out. Yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll probably do that. We have some Win 7 machines that are now under protection scope, so I'm going to guess the next scan. We have we do. For our MBSAs, we have it automated, and we have it run um, uh, once a month to give us a report. And it's, it's just because it's, it's just another check. We could probably do it more frequently, but we just, you know, there's lots of other things that we have in place to do auditing on top of it. So um, that's just one of those little checks we, we do and, and see what's in there. So on the next scan through, it'll, it'll tell me it'll, if it couldn't connect to it or not, because uh, we've, I think we've got five machines now that are running Windows 7. So um, we'll see then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're going to know in, by the end of the month that uh, yep. whether it yep. worked or it didn't. And it, um, my reaction is it's, got, it's likely to work. Uh, I just took a quick peek at the TechNet site on it. It hasn't been updated since uh, May of 2008. Like I said, it is an old, too. It's been around a couple of years. It, I'm oh, yeah. MBSA has been around for, oh, 2000. Well, actually, I think, I, you know, I don't know when it started, but I, I know I've been using it for four or five years yeah. and in different iterations. And, and the thing is, is what really important with this tool is it was a very significant tool four or five years ago that I think people just never used. Like back before WSS was actually something people had in their network, how did you know if your PCs were, had the right security patches in play? And this tool was something Microsoft has released for free specifically to address that issue. And I don't, you know, a lot of IT pros just simply didn't take advantage of it. And, and you still can, and I think people should do it. It's, you know, defense in depth allows you to have auditing controls as long as you have a way to monitor and, and, and you know, evaluate it on a regular basis and actually do it. It's, it's you know, it's useless to have the tool and not use it. Um, but if you do use it, it's just another part of your arsenal to give you that assurance that things are working the way they should. Um, personally, I kind of wish that System Center had a better way of, of linking things like that in there together. You know, System Center has a bunch of other things that make it, you know, sexy on its own, but um, the MBSA side is a, you know, standalone tool that's very easy to do audit and, and checks across systems, and that's pretty good. You know, and WSUS, you know, is a it's a it's an update service. You can do some cool reporting out of it, but ultimately, it's a tool that's meant to actually do something. The analyzer tool is meant to do assessment, right? I mean, it has a specific purpose, and these things work, you know, in conjunction with each other. Yep. Yeah, we should talk about WSUS too, because it's it's a service. It's a free tool as well. You obviously have to own a Windows license, but this is a for me, more than anything, is a tool for unlo- unburdening your network from Patch Tuesday. Yeah, because you bring down one set of libra- libraries of all the different patches and have it applied on the WSS server, and then allows you to then distribute it to all the nodes inside the network. And so you get, you know, you're getting one load download to the system, which then you can distribute to your, you know, your five, ten, five hundred machines, whatever it is. Right. The other side to it is what WSS gives you though, a little bit of interesting power is if you normally turn on your PCs to use Microsoft Update Service, which is it was fine for a lot of systems, but at the end of the day, you're getting pushed down what Microsoft believes are the patches and everything needs to be deployed. Right. With WSS, you can mark what you think needs to be deployed exactly. and what doesn't. And so that gives you a little more fine-grained control. Um, I have to say I'm definitely not an expert when it comes to WSS. You probably want to hook up with somebody like Susan Bradley on that because she's passionate about how WSS works. 
But um, from, from my point of view, I just know that I can go in there and apply what I need and have it push out to, to the nodes I want. And interestingly enough, I can then, you know, hook together with things like NAP. I can allow some quarantining and control. So, you know, I can put a, a system that's not meeting our patch requirements into an isolation net and then have right. it connect to that WSUS to download and, and synchronize. So maybe not so much of an issue if they're VPNing in or they're coming in through direct access, but if they're coming in through, um, they're on the LAN and they plug in and it's, it's isolated into a private net, um, those patches will come down a lot faster because it's going to be on your gigabit LAN, right? And, and, yep. and that's quite useful as well. Yeah, and I've deployed WSUS several times, and um, you know, in a, in an environment where you have you know custom applications, you know, that are in house, or you know, applic- maybe legacy applications, and you're concerned about compatibility associated with patches and updates, then um, that it, it it really is really valuable. I know it's uh, you know saved our bacon a few times over the years as we as we after we deployed it, um, it allowed us to do testing uh, and control, even prevent the ability of somebody to apply a patch or an update until we were able to um, until we were able to actually test it first. Yeah. Well I mean I I mean I don't know enough about WSUS. I, I would definitely like to do a show specifically on it because there is so much in there. Uh, but there is some reporting capabilities in there as well. I think people may be using this instead of MBSA, just to see, well, what patch states are we in and so forth. Yeah, but all that's going to tell you is, is what patches have been applied. What, what the MBSA is going to do is going to tell you, uh, it's also going to check for other components of what is the security posture of that particular machine, and in conjunction, what security patches are deployed and in place. And one of the things MBSA has that really hasn't been taken advantage of is that they do have a framework that allows them to push out other type of security of, uh, analysis if they need to. Um, I, I don't think that's in Microsoft's scope yet to do. Uh, I think they've got other things that they're building that are going to make that better. Um, but, uh, you know, it's no, what I like about it is I really don't care to look at the patches of this is a Windows Server patch that allows me to, you know, adjust my domain controller if that machine's not a domain controller, right? All I care about is are the security patches in place. Right. Those are the ones that are important to me to look at. So I get to filter out the other stuff because WSUS has tons. Like, you know, when you deploy it, you're going to have gigs and gigs of patches and, 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 and for all these different things. And I just want to isolate down to those, you know, four security patches. Right. And I really only care looking for the criticality ones that, you know, meet the security posture that I care about. Sure. I mean, they're, uh, they're brushing out Silverlight that way, .NET Framework updates oh, yeah. that way. There's all kinds of stuff coming out there. All right. Well, we'll get we'll get off of WSUS, and uh, should we go to Sys Internals? Because I love them, and I don't think enough people know about them. Good stuff. Yeah, well, you know, so that was one of the things. I was surprised. There was a lot of people that said they knew about the Sys Internal tools, but when I started showing simple things, like I, I was joking around, like I know you can do remote shutdowns and all that stuff, but I used PS Exec to the VM, and I was doing funky things to it, right? So, like I was uh, doing IP config, and I was doing NetSH commands. I was changing firewall rules remotely, but doing a single execution. So even though I couldn't connect to the machine through RDP, I could run a, a PS exec and open up the firewall to allow me to then RDP to the box. And like people didn't realize how much control you have on there. And and then you know then I did a remote shutdown and people just laughed. And I said you could you know you could use PowerShell and script this to just do it across every single IP on your network when you're ticked off one day. And everyone you know everyone was laughing. But at the end of the day, the point was is that there's tools like that that are designed specifically to allow you to do remote administration to systems without having to always be there. I was showing things like Process Explorer so that they could see. Uh, 
um, the relationships between applications and, and DLLs and, and how um, resources were being accessed. So uh, we, were at, we had a conversation, there were some people saying, well, you know, I don't have the benefits of things like UAC and other kinds of controls, so I have to give people administrator access on my XP box. And, I, you know, during that session I got a little ticked and I said, well, that's not true. That's just because you don't know what to do on there. And I explained, you can run Process Explorer and uh, monitor what an application is doing. You can find out what registry keys it's accessing, what files it's accessing, and then uh, adjust the security uh, perms and the ACLs on those objects accordingly to allow a person to run as a non-admin user in an XP environment and still be able to get their job done. And uh, uh, I, I think that surprised people. They didn't realize that you just literally can go and say, I want to monitor this application. What does it do? And you can see all the registry accesses and what permissions it needs. Because a lot of times it might touch it, but it doesn't need it for you know, right access until a certain point. And um, you know, that's a free tool that allows you to do that very, very quickly. You know what? You know, you'd make me think of something that I, I. It's a question I haven't asked, and there's probably not a good answer out there, unless there's some magical way that Microsoft would know. But with Windows Vista and now Windows Seven, you know, Windows XP, I can. I, I mean, I understand. You know, that people are running as admin all the time, but I wonder how many users of Windows Vista and in the future Windows Seven will be running as admin, and if that percentage will have dropped even one percentage point. Well, you know, if you take a look at how Microsoft's done this default deployment, by default, they still have the uh, mentality that when your first account that you set up, which will be the, usually the primary account people are using, is yeah. an administrator account. But what they've done is they've changed it so the integrity levels work in a way so that when you're normally running, you're running as a standard user. So even though you have an administrator token, they do what's called a split token so that right. you have your administrator privileges and they reduce it so that you only have what's called standard user privileges. And at the point where you need to have something that requires administrative access, it will do an elevation. And there's two ways that that happens. Is if you're running it as an administrative context, it just prompts you to say, uh, I'm elevating. Oh, is that okay? And in Windows 7, what they've done to make this a little better is, is uh, Susan Bradley refers to it as the zipper for UAC. It's a slider now that allows you to control just how much prompting you want. So when you have things like system applications, things that are digitally signed by Microsoft that they know are for doing administrative taskings that, hey, this is going to be allowed, um, don't prompt. So in, right. you'll find actually in Windows 7 that the number of UAC prompts that comes up is not as much as what you saw in Vista. And that was because they took the feedback of people using it, even in an administrative context, and said there's lots of stuff that, yeah, we know you need to be able to do these kind of things, like changing IPs and doing this kind of stuff, that you don't need to prompt for it. You know if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Um, and that's okay. I'm, I'm a security guy. I don't, I don't agree with it. I think the zipper should all be all the way up. You should prompt because nine times out of ten, if an elevation prompt's occurring, it means that a poorly written application is re re requiring probably more rights than it needs. Sure. Um, and in many cases, once applications have been properly deployed to a PC, you're not going to see UAC prompts if it's done right. Right. At the end of the day, you're, you, the thing will be set up so you can run as a standard user, and it won't affect anything because they'll get their job done. They won't be prompted for it. The interesting thing is Microsoft has come out with the Application Compatibility Toolkit designed specifically to allow you to evaluate applications and make determinations how they're going to function in an administrative and non-administrative context. And more importantly is it will give you a very detailed log analysis for auditing so your developer team can take a look at these applications and then say, yeah, you're right, we don't need that type of access, we can make these changes. And in some cases, even provide some guidance for remediation so that you can understand what you need to do. And I think that's a critical component, is that it's not just about a matter of pointing fingers and saying, you've got a crappy app. It's about 
you got a crappy app, and here are the things you need to look at. Here's how to fix it. And that's important because as more app developers start, you know, coming into the the new generation of how we're dealing with this, we're going to be able to have that line really be differentiated of what is an administrative context that matters and what can we run as a standard user. Now, if they continue to run as that first account, they'll run as a standard user, and it won't worry about an administrative context until it does something that needs that extra privilege that needs elevation. And if I'm doing a, a fresh install, like at home or something, or I get a new computer at home, that's one thing. I'm thinking more about the corporate networks where, uh, you know, I mean, it's just a lot of work to change from where we are to where we should be. And so, I mean, if there's a call to action, then, you know, the application compatibility toolkit and going with, you know, a new framework for a new, a new philosophy of, you know, how to run how to run users. But there's a lot of legacy applications out there. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just worried that there's, that there's great tools out there like the uh, compatibility toolkit and others to help people get to where they need to be. Um, I'm just really curious as to how much activity there really is in that area. You know, I, I, I don't have an answer to that one. I, I, and I think that really stems from different orgs are going to have different mandates. And, you know, Vista didn't get the biggest uh, pickup on the corporate side yet. Right. And that's I think true. that's because it's going to go, they're waiting for Windows 7. Let's be honest, they are. And what's happening is Windows 7 with the App Compat Toolkit, more importantly is the amount of education that's occurring with, on the developer world. If you take a look at just how much effort Microsoft's put into the developer community to teach them to write better applications, and then that's reinforced. If you look at things like Visual Studio 2010 and even Visual Studio 2008, they're making it much easier for you to understand from a programming point of view um, how to do it right. Now, it doesn't, hey, it's, it's a two-edged sword. They still can cut their legs off and screw it up, but you know, at least they make it a little, little better for you. And as corps deploy, what I like, especially with when you use it in conjunction with things like Windows Server 2008, there's new policies in play that allow you to look at a lot of this stuff and control it. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, it kind of goes off on a tangent here, but there's things like AppLocker now that are designed specifically to say, look, if I, these applications don't function the way they're supposed to, we're not going to let them run. We'll just block them. And right. we're going to force people to use the applications we've done a, a profile for. And, and that's one of the things is that, you know, corporate IT can set, sit there, put on an isolated LAN, a machine, pull down UAC so that there's none at all, um, do a deployment, or I actually wouldn't pull it down, i just turn off prompting. And then install the applications so that there's alerts and logs telling you what's going on there. Adjust the system in accordance so that you know that it's working the way it needs to. If that means you have to adjust perms, hey, you can still use the sysinternal uh, process monitor to look at that kind of stuff and make a determination of what it needs access to. Adjust the security policy and are the ACLs for that in, accordingly. And if you need to, adjust the, uh, you know, the firewall policies, anything else if it needs network access. And then you've got a, an application set that you can deploy out there. And in the worst-case scenario, if that doesn't fit the needs, there is always things like the new XP mode that's available in uh, Windows 7 so that legacy applications that just aren't going to function in a way that is conducive to how they want the security posture of a Windows 7 machine, they can have it run virtualized in XP mode. So it'll run you know, in parallel right. with the other yeah. operating system. Now, I have to admit, and, and you know, I'm sure some people at Microsoft don't like when I say it, but I'm not a fan of XP mode myself. Um, because it just becomes another node you have to manage and, and control. And, and, and quite frankly, we should be solving the application compatibility problem, not trying to shim it with another, another, you know, yet another PC we have to put under patch management. But yeah. um, that's just my opinion on that. I do think that IT folks as a whole are going to have a goal in the next couple of years of getting all the XP machines out of their network because they want the, in, 
increased security and the manageability that the newer operating system are providing. But that's a that's not an easy thing to achieve. No, it's not. No, and, and you know, and that's, I think that's the reason why Microsoft put it in play was that it's like, look, we know that we're going to have to shim this for a while, and we're going to need people to have that legacy application support. So let's do that. If you remember back to the Windows ninety five going into the XP days, it was the same thing with sixteen bit applications, right? We had the thirty two bit thunking layer that was specifically in place so that sixteen bit apps could run in ninety five. And by the time XP had it, was okay. That's enough. Sixteen bits dead. You know, it's time to move on. And there was a little bit of screaming, but then these app vendors ported it to thirty two bit. Now it's there. Well, now they got to do the next level and let's make these applications safer. You know, Microsoft spends a lot of money on the SDL and teaching developers about the SDL. These app vendors can write them. The choice has to be do they want to write them? Is there a fiscal a reason to do so? Uh, is there, and, you know, and, and a responsibility. Some app vendors are getting a little better. They, they know it's the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, it's the, it's the end users. It's going to be the IT professional screaming at them and saying, look, I'm not going to renew my licenses to this. You know, we're going to look at other alternatives that do work in these type of scopes so that we can have users run in a safer environment. And, you know, that, that's just the way it's going to have to be. But I also think that a lot of the, these problems are internal apps as well, that it's the developers in the organization that aren't being compliant either. They're just yeah, writing code yeah. in administrative levels. And since they don't take the tech support calls, they just don't see it as a problem. Oh, exactly. And, and that's where things like AppCompat come in play, because the IT professionals that have to can sit there and dump that and take it back to the dev team and say, look, these are the problems we're having. Here's the create file exec call you're doing. Yeah. Here it is. It's on this line. This is writing, re, trying to write to program files. Would you stop doing that and put it into the user's app data folder? Yeah. Oh, by the way, here's the API call you need for it, because actually AppCompat will even address some of that stuff. Because, you know, a lot of times, I, I, you know, we always joke that IT people are lazy, but I sometimes think that as developers we get even lazier because we, we get comfortable in what we're, we do, and if we don't know about an API, it doesn't exist. I'll I'll take it I'll take it straight to the IT department though because I've I've run I've worked with and I and I deal with this inside of IT departments all the time, and the fact of the matter is is there's an awful lot of IT pros out there that will deploy Windows Seven have deployed Windows Vista or running XP and they're running where the local user is they're running as a full administrator. Yeah. And that's just the way that they do it. And they do it because they don't know how to solve these other problems. They really don't. Do you think it's that they don't know how, or sometimes do you think that they feel that it's their computer and they should have complete control? That's the other thing I see, is a lot of people feel they, they're losing something if you, you re restrict them. And you see, the whole point of least privilege, which is what we really need to be running, especially when we have so much hostile, such a hostile environment that the Internet is, is that they don't know how to make it work in least privilege so that they have just the privileges to get their job done because they don't want to be hindered by it. Well, you know, and there, there is a geek sense of, you know, of, you know, this is my machine, I have power over it, I can do anything I want with it. So there's a sense of, I mean, some people might call that entitlement. Um, you know, you could call it a lot of different things. But the fact of the matter is, is that I, there's a lot of pros out there that don't know, and there's probably, I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast, let's be blunt, that don't know how to get from point A to point Z. You know, and there's a lot of steps in between in some cases. For some people, it's just a few steps. For some, there's a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, but it's the problem is is that I mean, there's a number of situations in our technology world as professionals where we run up against, wow, I know this isn't good. Uh, I know there must be a better way, but I really don't understand that way, and I certainly don't understand how to get there. And I hear that all the time. Well, we would do it if it would work but it won't work for us. So we're just going to keep doing it the way that we have been. 
Yeah, which is I don't think those things are true at all. It's just sort of the easy way out. I, what's interesting about the ACT tool is it's really making it simple for the IT pro to get the data they need to talk to the developer about how to make those apps work properly. Exactly, and I think that's what and that's one of the really things I really like, especially on the app verifier side, because you can actually you, you know you can have it in raw XML format that the programmer can consume, or you can have it. And what do we do is we just take that XML import it into Excel, right? And the XSD just loads it up and says, it's a nice, pretty view. And you can go in there and drop down and say, just show me the critical ones. And then there's a listing, and it tells them what the exact error is, tells them uh, what it can do. And, if, and depending on how the application's been compiled and if it's got extra debug information in there, it'll even go so far as to tell them the line number and everything else that they need in that kind of thing. And, and that's very useful. And so you get an IT pro that looks at a real desktop. Because the other thing is, remember, <laughs> developers' desktops have a very interesting scenario in which They've got every single friggin' tool that they need on there, so it always runs fine on their machine. It's a it's mutant it gets, machine, though. It is not even close to what the users are using. That's right. And so when the IT pro gets it, they get it on a clean machine to actually do the, you know, the deployment. And the, the surface is entirely different. So with things like App Verifier and things like Depends and and uh, the Sys Internal Process Explorer, they'll ex- explore and show them the applications uh, and all the things it touches. Like one of one of the cool tools I like inside of um, Process. Explorer is that you can actually take a visibility view of all the handles it's got open, and you can take a look at all the DLLs it touch. So all of a sudden you can find out what versions of, visual, uh, of the runtimes do I need for Visual Studio. You know what DLLs are in conjunction being used. You can even see what handles are being opened for different file accesses and registry accesses and all those little different pieces. And then you can take it back to the developer and say, look. Here's, I understand our environment, and our environment has these restrictions, these things. I need you to take a look at this line of business app that we have written in-house, and we need you to see if there's a way that you can make this work better in this environment. And there's, there's API calls, as an example, that will tell you, hey, get me the user's local um, data directory, right? And so they can say, I want to store config data for this user there instead of trying to write it out to program files or you know, write registry keys when you don't need to or, or um, try to access lo- locations of files. Or maybe things like HR data that really needs to be restricted via an ACL for the HR group, and you know they didn't think about that. They just say, just just go and access it. And you know one of the demos I had done during my app compat was um, purposely setting an ACL on a file uh, in my own directory that I wasn't allowed to access, and then show how to do impersonation inside the application so that I can impersonate as a user that did have access to that file. So here I have a file in my own directory that I'm not allowed to access. Access is denied, but I can elevate in this application. And so I don't even need a UAC prompt because I'm doing impersonation right inside the context and then giving me access to those files. These are, these are very simple coding uh, constructs to set up, but the developers themselves don't use it on there, and the IT pros aren't demanding it, or they don't know how to depend, demand it. So now the App Compact Toolkit comes back into play, and you can bring this in and say, look, I might not understand your world, Mr. Developer, but these are the things that are going wrong that we can see. What can you do about them? And the developers can then go back to their team and to the MSDN and look up this kind of stuff and find it. And um, you know, If there's one thing I think that's going to happen over the next couple of years, we're going to see Microsoft putting a lot of investment into these tools specifically so developers can build, I'm going to call them better apps, but it's really just to, you know, things they don't know, hopefully they'll be bubbled up so they do, so the IT pro can have that conversation in a way without being an in-depth developer and get the things done. Guys, I think that's a show. Thanks very much, Dana. No problem. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.